Today's scripture is from 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. All right. Cheery ending on that passage. Um, uh, my name is Tommy. Uh, I'm the, the pastor here, and uh, we've, been, we've been studying First and Second Peter. We kind of go th- just straight through books of the Bible. Um, to gain all the context and everything. Uh, there's a lot of context to, to every passage we read, and we try to pull it out. And uh, So um, basically chapter 2 of this book, um, these, these people, this letter was written to a people who are under Emperor Nero in the first century, right around 60 to 65, um, the year 60 to 65, and Emperor Nero is trying to round them all up and kill them. On top of that, there's some people who have come into their church who are trying to lead them into sort of the pagan religions. Most of them were syncretistic at this time, meaning that they tried to worship all the gods together. You didn't just pick a religion. You tried to worship all the gods so that if anybody was mad, uh, you'd be like, oh, I'm sorry, I left you out. I'll worship you too because you didn't want somebody like throwing a hurricane or a volcano at you. Um, and so you just worshiped all the gods to make sure that nobody was left out and all the gods were happy with you. Um, and so they, they came into the church and they were trying to do this kind of stuff. Um, and so the, the part that we've been studying here is um, Peter telling these people, um, hey, there's these false teachers coming in, and they're leading you to live by the flesh, what he calls um, the sensual nature of the flesh. In other words, you see it, you want it, you take it, whether it's good for you, your family, your relationships, your spiritual life, anything, you just do it. And uh, they're making a lot of promises that this is how life will be. And so today's passage kind of deals with that. What will life be like if you go back and venture back into that life that you came out of? And so uh, I'm going to open in a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump into this passage and study it. So let's pray. Father, we come here and uh, we ask for um, hope, and we ask for perspective, and um, we ask for grace and your mercy and understanding and wisdom wisdom to apply the understanding and the knowledge that we find. Thank you for preserving these ancient writings for 2,000 years so that we could sit and read them and contemplate these ancient followers of Jesus and what they were going through and how they interacted with you and, um, and that we can uh, gleam who you are from these interactions and who they were. And so we cannot look at it and say, look how different we are from them, but look how similar we are. And so that we can kind of make their struggles our own struggles, because in, in, in some ways we're all sort of dealing with the same things over and over and over, generation after generation. 
And so we come and we ask for, uh, for you to be present, to speak in our ear, to encourage us. We ask for peace. We ask for presence of mind, that we would not be elsewhere in our minds, that we would be here. We love you. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Okay, so uh, we're going to start here in verse 17. It starts like this. These are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. So he starts off talking about the these is the people who are leading them astray into various forms of idol worship. To worship other gods in these ancient times was not just to go to a different church or something. It was to go to a temple where there would be temple prostitutes. There would be, um, they would regularly binge and purge on like raw meat so they would hallucinate. Um, they would sacrifice children. They, it, was, it was bad stuff. Um, and so they're trying to pull them back away from Jesus into these things because the message of Jesus didn't quite fit in with the Roman way of life. It just didn't. Um, and so they were infiltrating the church. And he says, these are like waterless springs and mists driven by the storm. So the first thing he says is, these people, if you are to follow them, they're like a, they're like a waterless spring. The, uh, the, the original um, reader, listener of this letter would have pictured this. They would have pictured a desert where you are traveling through. You're heading somewhere. You're told, hey, the way you get there, you want to go here because it'll make you happy or it'll meet some need that you have. In order to get there, you've got to go this way. And there will be water there. There will be a well, and you can drink from that well when you get there. And so you say, great, I'll leave the comfort of what I have and the goodness of everything that I have and that I've built here. I'm going to walk out in this way because you tell me something's out there, and I'm going to go there. And he says that they are waterless springs. You get there, and there's nothing there. You can tell in the desert where water used to be because it kind of looks like this. Dead trees sticking up out of the sand. And you get there and there's nothing there. And the second thing he says is they're, also, they're like mists driven by a storm. So an ancient shepherd, first century shepherd, um, would be taking his sheep every morning um, out to different places where he knew the food would be fresh and ready to eat. Um, the, the grasses in the morning, there would be this mist that would come and plump up the grasses and they would become green. By mid-afternoon, late morning, mid-afternoon, um, there would be this hot wind and it would blow in from the, from the coast and it would char all of the the plants, and there'd be nothing at that point in time for the, for the animals to eat. And so during the late mid-afternoon, they would kind of gather under the rocks, in the cleft of the rocks, under some trees, and kind of wait out the heat. And then um, the next day, the mist would come back. And so the, 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 the shepherd kind of knew where to lead them, which, is, which gives important meaning to the passage in scriptures that says, my sheep uh, hear my voice, they, they follow, I, I know them, and they follow me. Um, when we follow the shepherd, the ancient people used to describe God as their shepherd. If, you, if the sheep didn't stay with the shepherd, they would uh, starve to death. There's no food. The, the shepherd knows where to go at different points during the day to feed them and lead them back to the fold again. And so he says, they're like the mists that are driven by the storm. So the mist, you know it's supposed to be there because you have to feed your sheep. And the mist, you kind of see it and it's there. And all of a sudden, a wind comes in in a storm and it just kind of blows it away. And in both of these situations, you know, you're out in the desert and there's no water. Um, you have to feed your sheep and there's no mist, there's no grass, there's nothing for them to eat. Um, and Peter describes this situation as, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. They're like waterless springs and mist driven by a storm. For them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. Um, if you don't have the water in the desert, you're going to die. If you don't have the mist in the morning, if it's blown away, if you don't receive it, um, you're, you're in economical ruin. Uh, you won't be able to feed your family. You may die. 
So the darkness that he's talking about here is just despair. Um, what you were expecting, you didn't get. And so the false teachers are saying, this is how life could be, and you kind of expect it, and when you get there, there's nothing but destruction and pain. And I'm kind of reminded of what he talked about back in verse 12 and 13, where he said, uh, they will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. If you live in a way that is destructive to other people, uh, Peter says that eventually that destruction comes back to you and destroys yourself. We've all seen this. If you live in a way that is... Uh, harming and painful to other people, you are harmed in the process. What you, the destruction that you were bringing about eventually destroys you. Uh, it's the sowing and reaping idea. And so the gloom of darkness is all they find when they get there. They left the safety of what they knew. They marched that into the desert, and there's nothing there. And so a lot of this oftentimes is driven by discontentment. You are where you are, and it's okay You're not like happy with it. I mean, it's fine, but you're not like excited about it anymore as you used to be. And you wonder what else is out there. What am I missing? It's the fear of missing out, FOMO, right? It's it's what am I missing? What is out there? Um, And you you just kind of contemplate this and you romance it, and then you see these other people who really are enslaved by what they're doing, but they're trying to save face and they're telling you, no, no, it's it's great. It's one. It's like you could. Have as much fun as me if you would just come with me, right? This is temptation. That's what, that's what temptation is. It's, it's someone speaking into your discontentment in your life. Now, um, let's go to the next verse. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So there's this, um, there's this idea here that... that these people that are tempting you are, are, they're liars, they're lying to you, but they see that you've just come out of this thing that enslaved you and you're, you're clawing your way out and they see it and they know that now this is the best time to kind of entice you again. Um, so there, I, I read a lot of different translations of these passages. I think the best translation of this verse that I found was by Eugene Peterson. He said this, they are loud mouths full of hot air, but, they're, but still they're dangerous. Men and women who have recently escaped from a deviant life are most susceptible to their brand of seduction. Um, People who come out of one abusive relationship tend to just run into another one. People who come out of one form of addiction kind of run into another one. People who run from one terrible job that they hate kind of run into another terrible job that they hate. Um, because they're looking for the same things in the same places over and over and over. This is kind of what we are talking about today is, is you have to gain some perspective. You have to back away. You have to have some time away from this thing to really see how destructive it was. And so I found this, um, this picture a little while back. It was a couple months ago. And I saved it because I was like, man, I'm going to use that at some point. And here we are. I'm going to use it. Um, oh, if I can get it up here. Here we go. Oops. Are we good? We're going to stay. Good. Um, it's not, a, it's not a, this, this part of it's not interesting at all. It's just, it's just a little path with some flowers, right? That's all it is. I mean, we like 
grasses, we like flowers, and we like to walk down paths that are gardens, and so you get kind of on your knees, and you can smell the, the roses, and you're like, oh, this is nice, and you look around, and it's just, there's beauty, and you can lay on the grass, and you can talk to somebody, drink a cup of coffee, and look up at the sky, take Instagram selfies, and you can just enjoy yourself, um, and so this looks really nice until you get in some perspective, and you back out a little bit, and you realize it's in the middle of San Quentin prison. Um, <laughs> this fascinated me. I stared at this for a while when I found this picture. Um, Beautiful garden. It's nice. Um, and I, I imagine when you're in this garden, if you just don't look around, you don't pay attention, you don't, you don't realize you're in prison. Um, but it's gorgeous. I mean, I, I, I can't even grow. I can't, I don't, my garden's nothing like that. Brown thumb. Um, and so this to me speaks to this. When you're in the situation, you, you have no perspective. It's like you can't see the curvature of the earth, right? Because of where we are, because we're on the earth, but you back away, you see, oh, it's big and round. Mankind never knew that, really, until not too long ago in history. Um, The fact is that until you back away from a situation, you don't realize how enslaved you were. You don't realize how destructive your patterns were. You don't realize how how far you were living from the way that God intended for you to live. Um... You don't, you know, and the farther you travel down this road of towards health and healing and wellness, the, the, and, and towards Jesus and your sanctification, you look back and you kind of see, wow, I was, that was bad. I didn't realize it. It's kind of like when you're starting a diet, right? You, you, I'm not going to eat these foods anymore. The next four days, all you want to do is eat those foods, right? Because they're great. But then you get a few months, it gets a little easier. A couple of years, you, you can't believe you ever ate like that. And you look back and you say, I. I was lethargic. I was snappy at everybody. I was, I, I was tired all the time. I didn't sleep well. I was sick all the time. How did I ever not see when I was living that way that there's another way to live? And this applies to every area of your life, especially your spiritual life. Um, you don't realize how miserable you were before. Um, how spiteful and terrible you were to other people, how good it is to live in tune with the Spirit of God, you know, how clear your heart and mind can be when you're, when you're no longer carrying guilt and hiding things and whatever it is for you. We all have something, right? That, that when you were 13, you said, I, I, should probably, I should probably fix that. And here you are, mid-30s, right? Still struggling with it. And maybe 40s, 50s, maybe your 60s. They'll still be there. And you've been in it so long, it's just kind of like, but, but it's a garden. Yeah, but you're in prison. You're in jail. Like you, even if you wanted to get out of that, you can't. What you need is community. What you need is to spend time with people who are on different spectrums of healing in these situations. You need someone who, that's what the church is. That's what the church is supposed to be. I don't know that that's what the modern-day church is now. But you walk into the church, and you look around, and you see people with your same struggles. You see people still on their way down, like they haven't hit the bottom yet. And you see others who, who are at the bottom, and they want to climb up. And you see yourself sort of, you're trying. You see people who are a little farther along on the scale. You see people who have conquered. And they're looking back, and, and there's this conversation about Jesus and, and salvation and resurrection and restoration and how you start to realize God wants to fix everything. God, he, the gospel has a lot to do with God seeing everything that is broken and desiring to make it whole again. And that's part of what church is. We gather together and we admit, here's my stuff. 
what's your stuff? And we lay it all out and we find healing. Oftentimes just saying it, letting go of the secret, just letting it go. Um, And you gain some perspective. So let's look at the next verse. Let's look at verse uh, 19. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So there's a lot of um, there's a, a lot in the ancient world written about slavery. They basically looked at those two kind, two kind of layers of slavery. There's kind of internal slavery and there's external slavery. And the internal slavery are is a lot of what the ancient philosophers were kind of wrote about. They wrote about how, especially in the Greco-Roman period, they they wrote about how. Um, there's parts of you that are just always seeking to um, lock into something that is destructive and enslave you. And it could be good behaviors, could be bad behaviors sometimes. Um, more often not bad than good. And so I've, today theologians write about this. They call our hearts idol factories. We're always creating idols, things to worship. But in the ancient world, there's sort of two forms of slavery. They only wrote about the internal slavery. Um, the external slavery, they didn't see a big problem with it. Because the ancient people, for instance, um, you have Aristotle uh, who wrote this. Uh, Most do not have natures worthy of freedom. So the ancient philosophers, they, 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 they were just these bigwigs. They were, they were the ancient day 1%. And they um, sort of pictured everyone else except for them as, well, they can't really self-govern anyways. They'll just run this thing off a cliff or into the ditch. And so here's what we're going to do. Um, they're going to be the slaves basically to the higher-ups and, and we're going to run everything. And then they'll sort of have some freedom without, without really hurting themselves. But us, we're free, but most everyone else in the world doesn't really deserve to be free. Their natural state is slavery. And this was also echoed by Plato. He said, most humans are by nature slavish and suitable only for slavery. This was a general thought. But they did write about slavery on the inside. Um, there was a guy named uh, Perseus who wrote a letter to the... Uh, this, this, this city of Rome, um, they were just in chaos. This, this city in Rome, I forget which one it is at the moment. I, I wrote it down, but I didn't put it in here. Whoops. Um, and he writes to them because they're just, they were always drunken, uh, just drunk, fighting. They were brawling. They were just drunkenness everywhere. And they were just destroying their own economy and their own city. And so he writes to them, and he writes about what he calls the masters that grow up within that sickly breast of yours. He says, you guys, your hearts are just creating masters. You just so, so badly want to be enslaved by things. Uh, and then you have this other guy, Seneca, who writes, to be enslaved to oneself is the heaviest of all servitudes. It's true. Our flesh is very powerful. And it wants so badly to enslave us. Paul himself was, was a philosopher. He, he was well-read in these guys. Um, he understood the philosophy of the day, and he used some of it, and he spoke to them. But, but, but in, in, he, wrote, he wrote this letter to this church in Galatia, in the city of Galatia, and they were coming out of this pagan worship into the church and, and becoming followers of Jesus, and the pagan church was sending people in to bring them back out, and they were buying into it. And so Paul writes to them and says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. He said, he didn't set you free so that you could just enslave yourself to religion or law. He didn't set you free so that you could submit yourselves to any other form of slavery. And in in the American church, there's plenty of forms of slavery. There's political slavery. There's social slavery. We we buy into all types and forms of slavery. 
Um, so there's, a, there's this quote by uh, St. Augustine of Hippo where this, this person basically wrote to him and asked him for a maxim, um, like a saying, not a magazine, stop. Um, like a saying, like, hey, can you describe what it means to follow Jesus? Like, what does this look like in the simplest terms? How do we follow Jesus? How do we love God? How do we move throughout this world in the way that God intended for us? And so Augustine, uh, in, his, um, in his, his, what's called the seventh homily on 1 John, um, he writes, and, and here's what he says. Love God and do what you like. And you read that and you say, well, that can't be right. That's not. That's because some of the stuff I like, I shouldn't do. Um, and, and this is what's in your head when you read this. See, this is what our mind does. Um, but here's the thing. He didn't mean this to just be this. It's one sentence. It, it's, it's two commands, two separate commands, the second flowing from the first. Love God. The first focus of yours is to love God, to plant that deep in your soul, to love him from the deepest possible place. And then ask yourself, now that I'm in tune with God, what do I like? Well, God has changed me, and, and, and maybe I'm, I'm much more gracious and gentle now. And so he actually, I, I had, when I was a, when I was a student, I, I, one of my theology professors, someone asked him, how do you know God's will for your life? You know, the typical question. People always ask, like pastors, pastors and theologians, how do you know God's will for your life? And um, this is what he said right here. He quoted this. <laughs> Love God and do what you like. Kid was so confused. Didn't help him at all. Um, <laughs> but if you go a little farther in this and you keep reading in what he wrote, he says this. Whether thou hold thy peace, through love hold thy peace. Whether thou cry out, through love cry out. Whether thou correct, through love correct. Whether thou spare, through love do thou spare. Let the root of love be within. Of this root can nothing spring but what is good. So if you live from that place, is what he's saying. It's very similar to what, uh, I think it was Kierkegaard, and they asked him, uh, um, what do I do? And he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Okay, so I should sell everything I own and give the money to the poor? No. First you should seek the kingdom of God. Oh, okay. So should I, um, so should I spend some time in repentance and prayer and practice spiritual disciplines? He goes, no. First thing you should do before that is seek first the kingdom of God. And he just, he's like, it's not about what you do. It's about the kingdom of God. It's what God is doing. It's, it's just flipping this upside down. It's, it's pondering all of this deep in your heart and living from a place where even your actions of love and gratification and gratitude towards God come from a different place. Because oftentimes we're doing it for ourselves, right? And so love God and do what you like. I like that. And, and here's the thing about, about all of this is... is we're kind of a generation that was born into a time when they were telling people that the only thing that God and Jesus and salvation is for is for your soul on the afterlife. It's like handing someone a parachute when they're like 15. Like, here, you're going to need this one day because you're going to have to jump out of a plane. You're going to need this. And so we carry this our whole lives. And that's all it is, is for jumping out of a plane. There's no other reason you would carry it. And, and this is kind of what we're told. But we're not given anything else about real life. And we're told God doesn't, I mean... We're here to fly away, the big pie in the sky, right? The sweet by and by, all that rhymes together stuff. And, and it's, but, but for now, this is just all, no, that, that's not what we're here for. We're here for that. Well, then why are we here for so long? But the fact is that God does care about slavery, enslavement, not just person-to-person slavery, but 
everything that enslaves us in our life. God cares about your life. He cares about the things that you care about, meaning in life, and finding joy and purpose in, in, in the small things and, and in the moments and in your own happiness. He cares about your legacy. And I, I kind of get the feeling when I was a kid that, like, oh, it doesn't matter what you leave behind. It's, what you, it's where you're going. And, but no, like... It, and we've gotten this thing so far off track. This is not about God giving us parachutes. It's God's giving us shovels, man. Like, we got some work to do. Like, God wants us to take part in the reclaiming of this world and, and the fixing of all the things that are broken. And we broke them. And God says, well, I'm going to fix it, but I'm, I'm going to let you help. You can carry my tools. Thanks, Dad. Kind of thing, you know? <laughs> like, and we find meaning in that. Kids find meaning in that. And... And so God does care about now. So there's, uh, there's this, when I, was, when I was writing all this, there was this um, chapter that came to mind. And I, don't, I, read, I read books, but I don't read, a lot, I don't read novels, really. I'm not a fan of, of just novels. Um, I should read more, I know, I understand. There's apparently some vampire things that are fascinating that I should read. <laughs> um, and, but, so, but there's a few novels that I've loved. Um, and my favorite chapter from any novel I've ever read is from the book East of Eden, John Steinbeck. It's, it's chapter 34. It's like a two-page chapter. Two pages. And it, it's not really part of the story. It's just he just slips in these philosophical thoughts just right in the middle of it. And in the middle of this story, he, in the middle of this huge, long, drawn-out story, he, he tells this little sort of quip about three men who die. And the first man he describes as, um, so where, where are we here? The first man he describes as, uh, first off, he's one of the richest men in the century. And he says, having clawed his way to wealth through the souls and bodies of men, he spent many years trying to buy back the love he had fortified, and by that process performed great service to the world, and perhaps had much more than balanced the evils of his rise. So, he basically, he says he clawed through the hearts and souls of men. Like he took advantage of everyone, destroyed lots of people in his quest to get to the top in the world. And when he got there, he was like, well, now everybody hates me. So I know what I'll do. I have lots of money and power. I'm going to use all this to buy them all back and make them love me again. And so when the people had heard that he had died, nearly everyone said, thank God that man is dead. The second man is described as smart as Satan who, lacking human dignity and knowing all too well every aspect of human weakness and wickedness, used his special knowledge to warp men, to buy men, to bribe and threaten and seduce until he found himself in a position of great power. So this guy did everything he could, destroyed as many people as he could just to get to the power, and that's all he wanted and that's all he cared about. And when this man died, the nation rang with praise and just beneath with gladness that he was dead. And then it describes this third guy um, who made tons of mistakes in his life. He made a lot of errors. And he was poor. Um, but he describes him as a man whose life was devoted to making others brave and dignified and good in a time when they were poor and frightened and when ugly forces were loose in the world to utilize their fears. He was hated by some. But when he died... The people burst into tears in the streets and they wailed, what can we do now? How can we go on without him? And so he's tapping into something that we all, when our hearts and minds are, are tuned with the way we're supposed to be living, spiritually healthy, connected with God and, and, and our hearts are right, that we all kind of recognize it's better to die poor and virtuous than rich and evil. And we all kind of get that. 
What he's actually telling here is kind of the story of Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus died poor, naked, hated by few, loved by many. And when he died, the people wailed, how can we go on without him? And they couldn't, and they went fishing. Because they had lost their rabbi. And so the rabbi comes back after the resurrection and finds them. And they realize they can go on. You see, but there is a place you can come to where, where virtue is not beautiful. You can get there. It's a very bad place. It's a very dangerous place. If you're there, you should be terrified. But there's a place you can come to where you look at virtue and, and it's not something that you find beautiful. Um, let's look at the next verse. Peter says this. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. So this verse and the verse before it, he kind of describes um, someone who comes from this way of life that was completely enslaving them. And they come to Jesus and they're following Christ. And, and they're around all the virtue and, and the holiness because Jesus is the most virtuous person that has ever walked the face of this earth. And yet they're romancing their thoughts of their past. The garden in the prison. Sure, you had some good conversations there. Sure, it was a lot of fun growing some flowers. You ever hear people becoming institutionalized? They become so comfortable with imprisonment that they're uncomfortable being out of it. This happens to your soul. And so you're more comfortable being back where you were. And, and so what you're actually experiencing is you're seeing virtue and it doesn't look as good as whatever it was that you came from. And so you want to go back. Don't romance where you came from. Don't romance that. I hear too many times um, the old... I mean, I grew up in a, in a pretty conservative Christian way of talking, and there was always people getting up romanticizing their past. Oh, I was this, I was this, I was this. But God saved me. But what they're trying to do is, I guess, control their reputation. I mean, if God set you free, you're free. So there's a, there's a passage actually in the, that it's in the Talmud that's fascinating me, to me. Um, and, and the rabbis are, are writing about, about life and joy and pain and, and the law and resisting things that they kind of want. And there's a passage in the Talmud where the rabbis write this. They say, you will be called... To account on judgment day for every permissible thing that you might have enjoyed but did not. The idea there is that God is extremely generous and, and there is a way that God wants you to live. And, and it's good. It's enjoyable. It's fulfilling in every way. Um, and so sometimes you need to, as an act of freedom, enjoy something as an act of God, as, as like a gift of God. But other times, if you are truly free, then you will fast from things that you want to prove to yourself that you are not a master to yourself, to your body. And sometimes you need to say no to people who you kind of are enslaved to their reputation, your reputation to them and their opinion of you. But you're a follower of Jesus. We are free. So sometimes you need to say no. And then sometimes um, 
you need to just simply refuse to defend yourself against the vile gossip that is coming out about you. Because if you are free, if Jesus has set you free, you are not a slave to how people think of you. You don't need to run around trying to tweak everyone's opinion of you. You are free. And too often we allow these masters to rise up inside of us and we bow down to them. But there is something better. There's virtue. When you see, whenever you hear a tragic story about a child and you hear people describe the child, maybe who died, what do they say? They were so young and innocent. Innocence is a virtue. Having done nothing wrong. Having not deserved any pain. Innocence and virtue are beautiful. And we all understand this. Virtue is actually the most attractive thing that we can actually possibly have, even though our culture is telling you, no, no, it's appearance, it's reputation, it's saving face is the most important thing. But at some point, appearance is lost. I mean, reputation can be destroyed by one sentence from a liar, right? Um, riches are not going to last. I mean, one saber rattling in the Middle East and your stocks are, it's all it takes. None of this is, is things that are beautiful and that virtue is what draws people to Jesus because his goodness, they see the grace and the mercy that he's offering. And so when you sit and you ponder the things you have been freed from and you romance them and you talk about how great they were, you kind of need to get in your mind, I, was, I didn't have perspective, I was a slave. You need to be involved in the lives of other Christians walk this stuff together. You need to be honest. Um, Temptations are real. The enemy is looking for every opportunity to speak into your heart and he knows where to tap and he knows how to pull you away. And so we need to be open. We need to be honest. That's what community is. Community of confession. If we are all speaking exactly the things that are going on in our lives, we all see that nobody's playing games. Nobody's hiding anything. All right? This is not social media Christianity. It's, It's honesty. It's the dark stuff. It's the, it's the bright stuff. It's all of it. And we laugh together and we cry together and we try to, as I, as I talked about a couple weeks ago, we pray the prayer, help me to be what they need me to be. And we pour our lives out for other people. And so we're going to take a time of communion. We take communion every single week. If you're a communion server, you can go ahead and um, take the elements and kind of spread around the room if you'd like. Um, it's the great uh, unifier. Communion is. It's the thing we all look at and we say, no matter, no matter where you've come from, how far you are on your journey, the body of Christ broken for the world, the blood of Christ poured out for the world, for the healing, for the reconciliation, for the forgiveness of sins. This is what God has done for us and this is what we do for each other. Jesus poured himself out for us and so we pour ourselves out for other people. And the reason we come to community is to be filled up so that we can be poured out. And so uh, we take communion every week and... Um, we take some time in prayer. Maybe this week um, you should kind of think about the things that, uh, first off, that God has freed you from. Look back on them and spend some time in thankfulness. And then let's respond with some praise, shall we? And, and maybe you need to think of, 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 of the ways that you have been failing, the pain that's in your life and, and how it got there because oftentimes the pain throughout your day 
uh, is actually, if you think about it, it's revealing to you the places you're enslaved. Maybe you fought with somebody and you went off on somebody simply because you're a slave to your reputation and you didn't want to look bad. Maybe you're a slave to whatever. Maybe, maybe you're going through a hard time with illness and maybe you're a slave to the sort of appetites of the flesh, the things that you've been eating, the ways that you've been spending your time. Um, a lot of the pain in our life can reveal to us the things that we are enslaved by. And we bring them to Jesus. And we say, Jesus, your body was poured out for us, your blood poured out for us. Forgive me, I've sinned. And he'll say you are forgiven. If you, need, if you need to talk to some people and confess some sins to a brother or sister in Christ, uh, we're all the priests of God. We can, we can hear the confessions of each other and look at each other and say, hey, you're forgiven in the name of Jesus because of what he's done. If you need prayer, right through these doors on the left, there's a prayer room, and there'll be somebody there to pray with you. Let's pray now and take some time uh, in communion. Father, we love you. We thank you. Bless us today. Give us what we need when we need it. Help us to be uh, aware of the, uh, the ways that we romanticize the things that enslave us. Help us to realize that we have been set free to be free and not be enslaved again. And let us look for those things that are enslaving us and let us declare your grace, your mercy, your resurrection over them and be free of them again. Thank you, God. We love you. In your name, amen.